Good afternoon. Good evening. My name is Herb and I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to our big book 12 step workshop. Please join me in prayer for an open mind. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, the 12 steps and you for an open mind and a new experience of myself my brokenness, the 12 steps, and especially you. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. We've officially started the step work. We're looking at step one. We're looking at the first half of step one. I'm pretty confident by now you understand from my own approach to the big book process that I separate step one into two halves, the part before the dash and the part after the dash. Critical, critical, important distinction. The dash is not an and. The dash represents the introduction of a new concept. It's under the umbrella discussion of powerlessness. No choice. But it's not in connection to addiction. That's why it's not an and. At least that's my interpretation of it. The first half of the first step reads, admitted we were powerless over alcohol. For our purposes here, because it's an invitation to anybody with any addiction, based on Bill's preface to the first edition. The preface to the very first edition, April 1939, in the very first paragraph of that preface, in the last line, he said, our way of living may have its advantages for all. What does that mean? Perhaps, and I do believe it, is a prophecy actually, because he didn't know the truth of this. The big book hadn't actually been published when he wrote this in the big book to be published. He suspected that the methodology he had described in the big book with regard to his personal experience with alcohol and the 12 steps would indeed be applicable to anybody certainly with any addiction, but even without an addiction. Our way of living, a spiritual way of life, what he uses that phrase for consistently, 20 times in the big book, is steps 10, 11, and 12. That is our way of life. That is the program of spirituality. The program of recovery are the first nine steps, and those apply to the first half of the first step, addiction. 
a word that I use as a substitute word for alcohol, to embrace anybody with any addiction. And we talk about substance addiction and we talk about process addiction. Substance, alcohol, drugs, and food, because it has a substance. Process that doesn't have any substance but it's every bit as deadly and destructive as a substance addiction. Addiction meaning repetitive behavior over which we have no control, which leads to negative consequences. Pornography, gambling, debting, buying, shopping, exercise, work. And in the world of Al-Anon and adult children and codependence relationships, they have an addiction to the drama based on dysfunctional relationships. I'm sure there's many more words that many of you could add to that as a descriptor from your personal experience. So we're focused on step one. The first half of step one has to do, as the doctor's opinion, we visited that last week, has described a body problem and has alluded to a mind problem. It's biology and psychology. The third component of my approach to step one is addressing the second half of first step, unmanageability. A problem of the will. That function in us that makes choices. We have free will. But here it is in step one, implying that we don't have free will in some circumstances. We'll look at that deeply, experientially. Bill says it's the heart of the matter. Those are my words. He says we're not cured of our unmanageability. We have a daily reprieve based on our way of life, 10, 11, and 12. This is the human condition the second half of the first step. You don't have to be an addict to have that experience. Life on our own human willpower doesn't work. We're restless, irritable, and discontent. We do what we don't want to do and we don't do what we want to do without any attachment to or connection to addiction. We'll look at that. Right now, let's look at that first half of the first step. We looked at the body last week. We looked at the doctor's opinion. It's an opinion. He's a medical doctor. He said, we have a craving that looks like an allergy 
two words that he takes out of his lexicon in physics and biology to try to describe his understanding of alcoholism. He's not doing it as a scientist. That's why he calls it his opinion, not his scientific conclusion and research based on study and statistics. No, 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 no. It's his opinion. An allergy, the abnormal reaction to a substance. Alcoholics have an abnormal reaction. By definition, one out of 10 only. Nine out of 10 people do not react like an alcoholic does. If you're an alcoholic, once you begin, you cannot stop. He calls that an allergy that looks like it might be biological. He calls it a craving. Now, he's using the word very differently than Webster's Dictionary would reveal to you. When you look up the word in Webster's Dictionary, craving means the anticipation of the desire for, a feeling about. It's always craving in the dictionary is always before. It's a emotion and or a consciousness before. The doctor's opinion made it very clear. I hope our unpacking of the doctor's opinion made it very clear. That the craving happens after. So he's referring to not a consciousness and not a feeling. He's referring to a bio, biology, a biochemical reaction. Once I take the drink, the drink takes me. Once I take the bite, the food takes me. Once I make the bet, the gamble, instinct, whatever that is in me, takes over and I lose control. Once I start, I cannot stop. That's the whole point of the doctor's opinion. Now, I gave you the next piece of that assignment because we spent our time looking at unpacking the doctor's opinion last week. We're looking at Bill's story tonight. Pages one through eight talk about his actual experience with alcoholism. He shows that it was a progressive disease. He had had strong warnings on page one from his family. His own father was an alcoholic, maybe even his mother. They both left him when he was about 11 or 12 with her father. They abandoned him. She went off to medical school in Boston, and the father went off to the marble quarries of Vancouver. That explains an awful lot about Bill's psychology of needing to have value and be validated by accomplishment and outside approval, if you want to get psychological about it. He didn't do any drinking until he went into the service. This is 1917. At the end of World War I, he, they didn't know it was ending. He signed up and went overseas. And you can see in that last paragraph his grandiosity. 
I fancied myself a leader, head of vast enterprises. He's revealing his early idealism and ideas about success. On page two, he studied law because he wanted to have some type of a background that would be professional. He couldn't, com he did complete it. He didn't do the exam. He never became a lawyer because he didn't do the exam or the bar. But he had that kind of education and he went to Wall Street because it was easy, quick money. Bill was into easy and quick and big. And as you could see on page two, he's describing the progressive deterioration of his drinking. He called it the boomerang, referring to his own experience of having his grandfather challenge him as they were reading National Geographic together and looking at a picture of an Australian native carving out a boomerang. And his grandfather said, only an Aborigines can successfully create a boomerang. And Bill said, I can do it. This is a story not in the big book, but that's the illusion. He spent a full year compulsed, spent all of his free time at 13 or 14 or 15, carving any piece of wood he could get his hand on. Finally, he took his headboard out of his room and carved a boomerang out of it. And successfully, it actually flew when he threw it returning almost to hit his grandfather, actually, is part of the story. Bill tells a story. Richard Rohr, one of my teachers, says, all stories are true. Some of them actually happened. And that's very true for Bill. He was a great storyteller, and he never let facts get in the way of telling a good story. You might keep that in mind anytime you listen to him or read anything he says. The dynamic and the principle is correct. The facts might just be contorted to fit into a good story. It's interesting from my standpoint to look at the bottom of page two to see that they went on a motorcycle run doing a geographic. Because of his drinking, I'm sure, Lois wanted to get him out of town and away from his friends. And they talk about going in a motorcycle with a sidecar. I've seen the pictures. Bill was in the sidecar. It was Lois that was driving. This is in the 20s. Motorcycles weren't what they are today. They were rattle trap mechanical devices that were very noisy and unreliable. But there she is, five years older than Bill. You might know that. And she drove the motorcycle. Very interesting insight to her personality and their relationship. On page three, he was very successful, made lots of money, but kept losing his jobs. And they were lone wolves in unhappy scenes. And he took up golf because he could drink in the morning a progressive disease, but he's very brilliant, very successful with his efforts at reporting stock market information back to Wall Street. And on page four, of course, the stock market crashed in 29, and um, he had such success and reputation, he went up to Canada 
got a job right away, started making money right away, lost the job right away because of his drinking and didn't have any real employment, it says, for five years at the bottom. You see the progressive development here. Think about that dimmer switch going down a notch at a time and the lights getting dimmer and the darkness descending. It's a perfect example of the progression of alcoholism, but it's also, on the other hand, a perfect model for the progress of recovery and of enlightenment. As the dimmer switch goes up, the lights get brighter a notch at a time, very slow, but very definite. As we lean our shoulder into this work, as we lean our shoulder into the dimmer switch, we push it up a notch at a time. A lot of work. The lights go up so slow, it's almost unnoticeable until it is noticeable. It might be a day, a week, a month, or longer, but eventually we will have more light which will allow us to see more darkness, which allows us to push consistently on the dimmer switch forward to have more light, to deal with the darkness. The house was taken, everything vanished. Lots of sweet promises. In his home in Stepping Stones in uh, Upper New York, they have a Bible in the living room. And when you open it, it has 12 entries, 12 different defined dates where Bill on the Bible, on his knees, wrote in a promise to Lois to stop drinking. He was never able to do that on his own efforts. It was only after he met Ebby Thatcher on the next page, page eight actually, where it says his musings were interrupted by the telephone of a cheery voice of an old school friend. By this point, Bill had had his bottom. Look up at the top of page eight. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. That's Bill's conscious bottom. He continued to drink after that, but with a complete sense of hopelessness and the imp impending insanity that the doctor promised of a wet brain or the mortuary death. On page five, going back for just a minute, he said, was I crazy? See, Bill introduces the term in the big book. We'll look at it in the second assignment, assignment uh, four, actually, where we're looking at the mind and the problem of obsession and delusion. One of the stories there on page 35 to 37 talk about a man who puts whiskey in his milk and goes to the insane asylum. And Bill on page 37 defines insanity there. We'll look at it there, but this is a prelude to that, giving us again a unique definition. Like Dr. Silkworth talked about allergy and craving, Bill talks about insanity. 
if you look it up in the dictionary, you won't find this definition. It's the way Bill used this word in the context of the big book. Crazy here does not mean psychiatric and psychological. Insanity, as Bill uses it in the big book, comes from the Latin sanus, S-A-N-U-S, the root word of insanity. And when you put an I-N in front of sanus, in sanus, sanus means health, I-N means not, not healthy. That's all it means is defective thinking. But it does mean that. In the same way, the doctor talked about our biology being different, subject to craving. That biochemical trigger that once pulled cannot be unpulled. Bill talks about insanity. Even when I stop, I cannot stay stopped. I start again because I do not process reality successfully. Insanos, I do not learn from my mistakes. Insanos, I cannot put the puzzle pieces together. Insanos, I cannot connect the dots, even with knowledge and experience and a desire. I don't remember to remember. That's the powerlessness that we'll be looking at. Now here on the bottom of page five, he gives us a definition of crazy or insane. An appalling lack of perspective. Hear the words, an appalling lack of perspective. Normal people get a perspective when they suffer, at least the second or third time but not Bill. On page seven, he went to the hospital three times in that uh, fall. In the first paragraph, it's about his hospitalization at Towns Hospital in September of 1934. In the next paragraph, it's about his hospitalization in November, 1934. And in the next page, it talks about his third hospitalization in December of 1934. Why wasn't he smart? Why couldn't he learn when the doctor told him he's going to die or maybe have a wet brain? He says, the mind and the body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony for two more years all the geographics and all the hospitalizations. I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally, he says here. See, he was getting this information from the doctor. The doctor was explaining very carefully the physical craving. He was also explaining very carefully the obsession and delusion. And Bill couldn't hear it. Even if he understood it, he couldn't apply it because he still thought, here it is, self-knowledge would fix it. Oh, I understand now, doctor. I understand really well. So now I can make a firm decision with my will. So he didn't understand it. 
how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. I'm going to stop there. He did not know that on page eight when he hit his bottom. He only knew that four years later writing this chapter for the big book. We'll pick up the balance of this assignment three, which is to read and highlight pages 17 to 23, so that we can actually finish our discussion about the physical aspect of the step one, powerless, no choice, and give you time to now answer between now and next week the questions that are inviting you to look at your personal experience in the body worksheet on page 15. The balance of next week after we'll unpack that information will be spent on your sharing your experience about once you start, you cannot stop. And I'd like to hear it from each of you who have different addictions. It's pretty straightforward for the substance addiction. Take a drink, take a hit, take a bite. It's not so straightforward for the process addiction and I'll be very interested to see what kind of words you use to describe your experience so that we can all learn, have compassion for addictions other than substance addictions, really get underneath the process addictions by you sharing your experience with that. Once again, that worksheet on the body is not about a test, right or wrong. These are questions to prompt you to take a look experientially, existentially, at your own personal history. Did this happen to you? Like the questions in the assignment three on number five. Have I ever lost control once I start? Did I behave like that? Has this happened to me more than once, more than three times? Reasonable people don't make the mistake the third and fourth time. Healthy people, mature people, non-addicted people do not continue behavior that is hurting them. And yet most of us had five or 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years of it. And we never learned until in fact, we crashed in a bottom and or were given a gift at some point that woke us up to the devastation. I'm struggling with managing, like I, my doctor prescribes me pain medication. So I don't really consider myself sober in that sense. I feel dependent, like a, I feel afraid to go off them. I feel like when I'm, uh, when I'm taking prescription drugs 
or like certain herbal supplements, not, not cannabis or anything like that. I feel blocked from God. And so I want to come off of them, even oh, though see. my, even though it, it doesn't look like what addiction looked like to me. Are you taking your medication precisely as prescribed? I am, but I, I still, I just don't, I don't feel connected. So what you're saying is that you don't like taking the prescription, even though you're taking it as prescribed. I understand that. My wife had the problem with antidepressants. And uh, once she finally took them and was on them for a while, she straightened out emotionally and then felt like she was, she had it and went off of them and went back into the toilet bowl. So she had to realize that she was biochemically deficient and needed antidepressants. So as a recovered alcoholic, she just didn't like taking anything that was a prescribed medication. So uh, I, I do relate to that. Is, what, are, what are your thoughts about what I just shared? Well, I, I, I take psychiatric medication as well, and some of it has abuse potential. And yeah. Um, yeah. my doctor recently put me on medication for ADHD. Yeah. And I feel, and I can feel, and I used to do some pretty hard drugs and I'm, there's a ghost that I'm recognizing, like a, a phenomenon, like you said, kind of a phenomenon yeah. of craving yeah. around it. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult path to navigate. And you sound like you're actually navigating it very consciously. So, you know, congratulations on that. The key is, taking your prescription as uh, prescribed by a knowledgeable physician, and not all, not, not all physicians are knowledgeable, I would want personally to go to an, an, a specialist like an addictionologist who has been specially trained in addiction to be evaluating my medication. And, um, and also then clear and transparent conversation with a sponsor. I think those are the two areas that help us navigate this very treacherous, slippery slope. Well, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't try to do this by yourself. You're, uh, you sound very common sense and conscious. It still requires somebody, uh, I believe, professional and also somebody in the, as an experienced peer person in the program to help us navigate. I was looking at the body worksheet and I wanted to talk about the process addiction and how um, I have process addiction and food addiction and codependency. So I'm in Al-Anon as well. So I was thinking about the, my experience with addiction with the process and I realized that it's, it's quite similar to what I've written for my, the food, you know, like I, I want to hide it. I'm dishonest. Um, I react. Um, I just need to do a bit more work on it, obviously. Like, I've done it with the food here, but I really wanted to talk about the process. But I guess I should be a little more prepared when I'm going to. But just the very beginning of it, I can see it's cunning, it's baffling, it's punitive to me, and yet I still do it over and over. 
those that's my experience with that addiction of helping when I'm not asked to help. And well, we've got we've got lots of time going forward, so yeah. you've got time to explore that more deeply. And quite frankly, my sense is that codependency is the underbelly of an awful lot of our problems generally. Um, I, I don't know that yet. I haven't done a complete study of codependency. I plan on doing that, but I've been planning on doing that for a couple of years and I haven't gotten to it yet. So we'll, we'll see. But I, I you know, so yeah. just continue, continue asking yourself these kind of wonderful experiential questions because it will reveal itself to you, yeah. especially as we go through this work. Right. And, and I've heard people say, oh, I'm addicted to the, to the adrenaline. I don't even, I, I, I'm so in denial that I, I never even thought of that. I just yeah. want to be loving and kind and helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah. You know, yeah. 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 One of my teachers, we talked about him earlier, is Richard Rohr, and he said, ask the question in the milieu of prayer, especially like what we talk about, the set-aside prayer. Ask the question in the milieu of a set-aside attitude in prayer. Don't answer it. Allow the asked but unanswered question to percolate for a day or a week or longer. And allow, allow the spirit and your spirit to interact on it, continually reflecting like I see you're doing, like I hear you're doing with this. And then at some mm -hmm. point, write something out in a spontaneous way and maybe sit down and do that more than once or twice and see what gift is revealed to you. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Great. Right. Yeah, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. I think in the first step, what's rising up for me today is just an awareness of, of I mean, how much I identify with uh, that appalling lack of perspective. That, what was it, I don't remember to remember. Um, so I come in, I mean, I came into recovery and addiction programs through first uh, through sex addiction. And then I didn't really get well, couldn't get well until I also dealt with food addiction. And so they kind of went hand in hand for me. Right. Yeah. And um, I have kind of a, I'm a very, I feel high functioning on the outside, on the inside, kind of a neurotic grasping, a fearful grasping, kind of picking up that defect of fear over and over again and sort of, of, of uh, getting in my way with sort of uh, at times, um, just a self-loathing kind of a, it's still never enough, never enough, never enough. And it's just an obsessive thought that frankly it bores me and it, it aggravates me and that it still comes up as sort of a first level response at times. And so I think that's where I'm feeling the first step right now. I'm very interested in, um, in greater freedom uh, greater uh, release of that defect and that the way that I continue to pick up that uh, fear and self-deprecating habit. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, well, you've been around the programs for a long while. Sounds like you've been very committed in terms of your 
the methods and the tools and all. Um, I want to ask a question about your meditation practice. What do you do in meditation? Uh, right now, just it's been about five weeks, uh, maybe uh, eight weeks now, eight weeks that I've been every morning kind of without fail, minimum 30 minutes, and then another check-in of maybe 20 later in the day. And I'm, that has grounded me. So I'm sort of just wanted to live in the first step, although another part of my report would be that since I resumed that, it's been an extraordinary shift again for me of peacefulness and groundedness and I feel like I, like even, I think I started it after we started these meetings and the first couple of meetings, I wasn't fully hearing you. And then the second and the week after I started, I was like, ah, there you are, <laughs> you know, kind of, yeah. And so I, it's been huge for me. And, and I just, I just want more, you know, I want more of the freedom. And um, there can still be a, an appalling lack of perspective sometimes when it comes right now, for example, this, it sounds so stupid and trivial, but it's an internal difficulty that with the anxiety I feel with COVID and Black Lives Matter and the workload, which has been huge and lately, and it's all on Zoom and I'm, I'm not very good with technology, blah, blah, blah. But I, I find I pick up, you know, ordering things on Amazon like like a crazy person, you know, and it's like, at first it's kind of funny and then all of a sudden my partner has to deal with it. He's watching these packages just pile up, you know, and yeah. So anyway, I, I still got the bug. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do, but I think indirectly you answered my suspicion, and that is that prior to five or six weeks ago, you didn't have much of a consistent meditation practice, and you were rudderless. Yeah, you called and, it, yeah. And now you have it, and now you have a rudder. I probably, if you would have asked me eight months ago, I would have told you I have a really consistent meditation practice because I did five years ago you know <laughs> no that's a great memory <laughs> yeah. right. that's right no no we will save our face rather than save our ass that's right <laughs> absolutely all right, right. anyway great. thank you thanks a very enjoyable thank you so much the truth and the reality of what i've been doing is hitting me again uh, um, i knew um I wanted to be back in the program. Things were not, life was not working. I was um, angry and irritable and all of that. And um, I didn't know why and I didn't know what I was doing that wasn't right. So I wanted to be back in the program to sort it out. And I realized I wasn't being totally honest. And so here I am and hearing everybody's share and I'm grateful for them. It's the truth of it all is smacking me right in the face. I'm being dishonest. I'm not, my feet aren't doing all of the work. And um, here I am. And it's, I'm, ang I'm not even angry with myself. I'm just disgusted that I'm back in this slump again. But you're, you're not in a funk and you're not in a slump because you're here and you're talking about it. Now you called it that and that's okay, I don't care what you call it, but showing up and now addressing it like you just did, all right, you, you connected in a special way to yourself, telling yourself the truth when you hear it out loud.
What was your experience in articulating it just the way you did? Um, first, I was hoping that you wouldn't call on me because I didn't, it was so negative what I was going to say and everyone else was anyway sharing and, and I thought, but this is the way it is. See, this and is that's my now. prayer. That's my prayer and invitation for everybody to connect to the aspect of addiction that represents the darkness. Absolutely. You're right in sync with us. Mm -hmm. You're asking the questions and observing your experience. And now you're going to have a new launching pad for doing this work. Because I believe I heard you say, you don't want to feel this way. I don't. Yeah. I, I want to feel that lightness of being connected with God on a different level than me, myself, and I, who I can't stand yep. at this moment. Yep, yep, yep. yep. And, um, the psychologist I work with, Dr. Allenberger, you'll hear me quote him all the time. <clears throat> he's 49 years sober and um, he's a clinical PhD psychologist. We do lots of work together and you'll hear some of that as we go forward in the year. <clears throat> he said, we need to name it, then claim it, and that tames it. And I mean, I love the poetry of that. Name it, claim it, tame it. And uh, really, that's steps four through five for sure. Four through seven, clearly. I am naming it, claiming it, and taming it. I am also a codependent. Mm -hmm. And child of of alcoholic of an alcoholic parent and um i'm very much back in my codependency and mm -hmm. when i did the shop your your workshop the last two years ago by the end of it i was able to really stand up for myself and not take any running over that anyone was trying to do if that made sense yeah, and it makes total sense. I had something happen last night that was very hurtful, and I just stood there stunned. And then I thought, this is why I'm in this workshop. I need to get it and hold on to it, That's it. and stand up for myself. That's it. Yeah. So, wow. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, see, the level of consciousness now is really explained because you've done some work before. So you have a criteria as to your life improving. And so when you look back from where you are, you can see that you're not where you want to be. I am not. That's for sure. I know that more than ever. Yeah. I thought it was before I came in, I thought something was off. Yeah. Now I know I'm very off with, very with um, where I want to be from where I want to be. Yeah. Good yeah. deal. Thanks very much. Every time I hear the Bill's story, I hear things I never heard before. My experience is the same as, as his, only substitute food. Yeah. I can go um, for a couple of days, but if sweets or bready products are um, offered to me, or they don't have to be offered to me, if I go out and get them, yeah. I just keep, continue to eat. Right, yep. 
two years ago, I didn't have any problems with uh, high blood pressure. And I didn't understand, I'd never heard or understood what people said when they said indigestion. My indigestion has been so bad that it's kept me up at night and terrible, terrible experience yep. of being woken up with something coming up in my mouth. It, it feels like yep. petrol. It yep. feels like a gasoline. So now and you're I, having some further deterioration of your experience yes. with food. Yes. Right. And that's exactly what uh, Bill's story was about, wasn't it? That gradual deterioration where things are happening that didn't happen before. And yet two more years went by with him. Actually, yeah. it was really six, wasn't it? Two and then four. I don't know. Doesn't but matter. I don't think that I can uh, last that long because um, heart disease is, is very prevalent in my family. My mom and dad died of it. My there twins my twin sister's go. gone because of it. Everyone yeah. down the line has had it. It's kind of like my turn. And I just don't want to go through that. I want to, you know, get in health again, get in oh. good health. and Good. Because what you're saying is because of your genetics, the game of Russian roulette is your family game. Exactly. Well put. Well, the cylinder has six chambers Three of them, in your case, have bullets. Oh, dear. That's um, not a pretty picture. The way you described it, it's not a pretty picture. The normal game of Russian roulette is one bullet in six chambers. The way you described your family history, you've already got three bullets in the chamber. Ouch. Yeah. It's true. Maybe you can hold an image that will motivate you to be diligent with this work and see what happens. Right? I certainly hope so. That's the best you can do. Well, I'm grateful for your program. Part of my process has been work <laughs> and, and self-sufficiency. Um, and what I realize is I've been trying to feel secure and I have a relationship with God who's my higher power since I was a kid. Um, but, but I, how could I trust that? And I realize that I've been, oh, I hate, oh, just saying the next word, using relationships, probably using people, males in particular, to try and fill that hole and to make me feel safe. Sure. And it's almost like I've taken hostages because most often they're not available and, and I'm not. But it's, it, it, it feels really, it's really pretty nasty. So that's, I'm glad that that's coming up, I guess. I am. And, and that's what Pascal was referring to. Uh, sort of a 19th century philosopher, I guess, and poet. And he said, the whole in us is in the shape of God. Uh, you know, whether you believe with the theology or not, the poetry of it is right on the money. We've got a deep hole in our soul. That's the unmanageability that we will address, the human condition. And that's what you, I, you prompted me to have that image when you just said there, there's this hole in me that I can't fill with relationships and or whatever else. Yeah. 
this brings us to a relationship with meaning and power and value. And the silver bullet of a 12-step program is we get to name it what it is. There's no theology here and there's no dogma here. We individually in steps two and three get to choose the power that we want to associate with. Yeah? Mm -hmm. You were speaking about um, sanus and insanus. Yes. When I walked through the doors of F.A., um, there's a saying in F.A., you either go for the vanity or the sanity. Well, I didn't go in to lose weight. I knew I was insane. I knew I was a sick puppy. And what I'm finding is happening right now, Curb, is that I'm feeling that same kind of, as we're diving deep in step one, I'm feeling that same kind of insanity in my heart area, in my body, and in my mind with reference to shopping. All I can think about is I need pink towels and redo my bathroom now. And all I can do is think about it. I mean, I'm, it feels like I'm white knuckling it. So um, I, I don't know what to do when I feel like that, you know, I. I could call my fellows. I'm, I'm telling you because, you know, it, it, what can I do when that secondary addiction or the tertiary addiction comes up to the point where you just want to explode? It's really, it's really a good question. Uh, really, seriously, it's an excellent question. And it could happen at any time in your recovery journey. Um, or in your human journey. First, though, I want you to repeat that phrase. I'd never heard it before. You're either going for vanity or? Sanity. You, Thank you. you. There, there are people who go into program as a no. diet. No, no, no. I, I, I got it immediately. I, I just didn't remember it. <laughs> now, um, I, this is a sidetrack, but I want to make the comment uh, because it's relevant to that uh, contrast of words. Bill Wilson said, you're either going for God or you're going for alcohol. You're either going for God or you're going for alcohol. There's no resting spot. Any action that we take is either going toward the spirit or going toward the spirits. That's how Carl Jung would express it. All right. And uh, so uh, vanity versus sanity. I love it. I just love it. I'm a word guy. I made a note. I wanted to remember that. But here now, uh, your question. As human beings navigating life, life is difficult. That's the first line in the book, The Road Less Traveled, isn't it? Life is difficult, and it creates tension. 
Sometimes it's biological tension of safety. Sometimes it's psychological tension of satisfaction and security. Sometimes it's social tension in terms of our relationships with people. Those tensions, if not managed, lead us back to a way of soothing ourselves, of reducing the tension, which is the drawback to our addiction, which is a priority, or some substitute addiction that doesn't yet have the name in our life as addiction, like shopping. It's so, it's so approved of by our society and culture. Um, or eating, so approved of by our society or culture. Or working, oh my God, corporate America loves workaholics. Now, they die getting the job done. Oh, well, bring me another human being that's a workaholic. We'll just replace the parts. I mean, it's very inhumanistic, the approach, all right? And that's why Bill, I believe, created the 10th step. In the 12 and 12, it really, and we looked at it superficially as we began this journey for the very reason that you're raising this question. Um, because once you get abstinent in one area and you don't have the medication for soothing yourself, you need some other tool to, in fact, soothe yourself or reduce the tension. And so in the 12 and 12, he says, when, when it's a spiritual axiom, whenever I'm disturbed, disturbed, his word for tension, there's something wrong with me. Now, in the big book, in step 10, he gives us the four items that we look at in step four. If you haven't done step four from the big book, you don't know this, so I'll list them. Resentment, fear, dishonesty, and selfishness. And he says, very intuitively, knowing who human nature is, what it is, he said, watch for resentment, fear, dishonesty, and selfishness when they crop up, not if they crop up, because these are the sources of tension, then you take these four actions. And it's a recap of steps one through nine. Step 10, it says in the step itself, continue to take personal inventory. All right. Now, if you read step four, the mother of all inventories it has different words. It says, made a moral inventory. It doesn't say personal inventory. I don't know whether that was intentional, but I'm assuming it isn't that the words have a specific meaning, moral meaning, getting an understanding of our underlying motives and beliefs and values. If you look up the word moral in a dictionary, it means values. In step 10, it says personal inventory, meaning this is what happens to us on a daily basis in our personal navigating of the human path. And in fact, in the 12 and 12, he really helps us understand the use of the step 10. Many people think we do step 10 at night and or we do step 10 in writing. And I don't care about that. It's just not the instruction in the big book. 
the 12 and 12 says it's a spot check inventory, meaning on the spot when I'm disturbed, when I have this, to te this tension that is ready to blow my head off, like you just, I mean, you didn't use those words, but your, your, your hands kind of expressed it. I could feel it. Um, then he gives us four, four um, actionable items that we take in step 10. And it's, in, it's on page 84 in the big book. I'll paraphrase it. First, we pray. My interpretation of that is, oh, yeah, I learned under each step one through nine that I'm powerless. Under each step, oh, sure, I'm powerless in step one, but I'm really powerless in step two. I cannot adequately name God. In step three, I cannot adequately and effectively turn my will and my life over to the care of God. In step four, I cannot accurately understand the exact nature of my resentment and my fear and my inappropriate sexual behavior and why do I keep all these secrets? In step five, under my own power, I can't tell transparently the truth. In step six, I can't even see my character defects, let alone am I willing to put them all down and read them to somebody. In step seven, it's a prayer because Bill already knows we're powerless over step six. In step eight, to make a list and be willing to repair all the damage? I don't think so. That's the instruction. I know for sure that I'm not capable of doing that. No, you, you kind of get the rhythm of it. And then going out to, in fact, make restitution and repair all that damage. Oh, you know, what does the book say? Um, I can't go through with it. You know, that's what he says on page 60 at the end of the step list. So I pray because I'm, I'm powerless. The second action is I talk to somebody else. Oh, that's right. Step five is about full disclosure. because I'm a human being. I need to be accountable. I need to tell on myself. I need to have no darkness in me, no secrets. The third item is I make amends. Well, most of us, if we're disturbed, we're certainly going to be disturbing those around us. I mean, I'm willing to share my disturbance. <laughs> I'm contagious that way. Um, so the third action is making amends. And the fourth and the final and the absolute sort of key to the entire step process, to the entire turning process, this fourth action is to turn our thoughts to helping somebody else. Notice in my paraphrase, and it's close, Bill isn't actually telling us to help somebody. He's saying, think about helping somebody. But he also is a good enough psychologist that he knows that if we begin thinking about taking an action, eventually we'll take that action. So what have we done here? In the first action item prayer, we've turned to God. In the second item action, we've turned to our accountability partner. In the third action, we've turned to clean up the wreckage. And in the fourth action, we've turned to, to help other people.
the whole point of the spiritual malady, and some of you don't know this yet because you haven't been through the first step, but unmanageability, the very nature of the second half of the first step is selfishness, self-centeredness. Just look at page 62. The first paragraph begins with a, 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 a I think it's three word sentence with no verb. Selfishness dash self-centeredness exclamation point. That's the root, he says, of our problem. And resentment and fear and dishonesty and uh, uh, our secrets uh, all come from our self-centeredness. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just a thing. That's how we're built. It's a survival mechanism. But that's the nature of unmanageability so the turning that we commit to in the third step made a decision to turn that turning is from our self-centeredness to other centeredness in step 11 other with a capital o meaning god or higher power or spirit and step 12 others with a small o meaning the community of humanity the point of step three is a recognition that I'm powerless over my addiction as well as my life, the two halves of the first step, and that I need a power other than myself, and I'm going to have a relationship with that power. That's the turning in step three. Steps four through nine are the turning. And step 10 is the tool to stay turned and I call it in alignment. The word's not in the big book. When we're disturbed, we're out of alignment. Look at my hands here. You may have seen me do this before. When we're out of alignment, we're going across, we're going across the flow of life. We're out of alignment. We've made decisions based on self. But in step three, we make a decision to stop that and to turn and be in alignment with the flow of reality. I could have said God's will. I, I, I intentionally did not say that. I want to keep it as human vocabulary as possible because this is a human methodology built specifically for the human problems. In step three, we make a decision to turn. In steps four through nine, we turn. And because we're human beings living our lives after we finish step nine, we're going to constantly be into self-centeredness, which is going to create the tension and the disturbance. And we're going to, on a daily basis, have to put ourselves back in cooperation with the spirit. It's a partnership. The right word is not coming to me now. Essentially, it's a, it's a cooperation hand in glove a spirit and my uh, willingness to take action. My willingness to take action in God's grace. Uh, it's a mystery to me how it works, but it's been totally revealed to me that it does work. Wow, that was a long sermon. I, <laughs> I did not mean to, but I need, uh, but you prompted me to give it uh, the full context because it's the heart of the matter. And I hope that... Uh, answer some questions that may have developed more questions. But anyway, what's your experience with what I just shared? Okay. 
intellectually and logically, I follow the sequence. Yeah. When I experience the intensity of that discord, I feel stuck and don't know what action to take. All right. Two words, which is going to summarize what I just spent 15 minutes, I think, saying <laughs> two words. Help somebody. Think about who you can help. Those are three or four words. First of all, certainly pray. Certainly talk to your sponsor, but I'm, I'm assuming you do that anyway. Get into action helping somebody. And it doesn't have to be a person in a program. It right. could be your kids. It could be your family. It could be your work environment. It could be your neighbor. It could be go visit a hospital. Go visit an orphanage. Go visit a convalescent home or a hospice home. Go someplace or at least make a call. I mean, today we're really challenged with any type of actual physical contact. But but reach out intentionally to help somebody. See, that's what Bill did in that Mayfair Hotel on, um, in December, in, um, excuse me, in uh, June of 1935. He similarly was there Friday night, completely disappointed with the, uh, turn of the outcome of his business venture. He was broke. His partners told him to stay there and try again on Monday. He didn't have much money, but they were paying his expenses in the hotel. And he was outside the bar thinking of going in because that's the only place where people were and they were having fun and he wanted to have some. What did he do? He went to the telephone and he began calling to find out if there was somebody out there he could help. And the rest is history. History. Yeah. Thanks so much, Herb. Wow. That was a, a it, it's it's the heart of the matter. It's the bullseye. That question: How do I deal with life on a daily basis when I'm in tension? And it's not just a thought. It's it's blowing my head off. Yeah, or 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 in some other way, really got its grips on me. No, thanks very much. I wanted to to see what you felt or how you thought about when you, when, when you feel that your emotional balance is starting to get threatened and you can see it happening, is it okay to just get yourself out of that situation and try to protect that emotional uh, well-being? Or do you lean into it, feel the fear, do the fear inventory, um, and, and get to you know what God would have you be so that you can because in that there's the spiritual maturity that you will get if you do that enough. So I was just interested in your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that it would depend on the circumstances. Okay. And I could say yes to both of your solutions to the fear. Leave the environment 
to, so that you can protect yourself and feel safe. That clearly is an option. But you also have the insight that when you deal with the fear and you face it, that it, it, it builds character, right? And so it would depend on the circumstances. When I was in my second year of sobriety in a meeting, I only went to participation meetings because I liked the variety of sharing. And uh, somebody shared about fear. And they said, when you feel the fear and you're conscious of it, they said, turn around and face it and look it directly in the eye and then walk toward it, directly looking the fear in the eye metaphorically. And I said, well, that's certainly counterintuitive and it makes no sense to me because <laughs> it's like, no, no, hide or lie or, or, or run, absolutely. Uh, which is the biological instinct for survival. But I, I've never forgotten that because as I experimented with it, the kind of fears of being publicly humiliated in my first year in AA, I didn't want to raise my hand and share because I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't even sure I was an alcoholic and I belonged there. Um, but I heard in the meetings that if in fact you're afraid to share, raise your hand and just say that. Don't, don't try to say anything else, but, but acknowledge it out loud in the group and then be quiet. And that will address the fear. It will break the uh, syndrome in you. It will bring up some courage and you will then realize that the feelings you had were not real. Nobody... Nobody laughed at me because I said that. In fact, many people came up in identification afterwards and said, wow, we felt that way too in the first. Just be there. You don't need to share, um, but don't feel any compulsion to, but, but connect to us the way you did. Oh my God, did it make me feel part of and it reduced even more the fear. So I could go either way depending on the circumstances my first preference would be to face it. Bill says pause when agitated in step 11. Pause when agitated. Pause when disturbed. And then do that 10th step. If at the end of the 10th step, because it'll take you 30 seconds to a minute and a half to do the 10th step in your head um, as to the actions that are offered to us, uh, can I handle it or should I not fight this battle today? So I make a, a decision to either leave the situation or address it, but it's a very conscious decision. I'm not being run out by fear, nor am I staying because I'm being silly about my ability to cope with it. I see. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because here we are, most of us are over 21. We're adults. And we have three brains in our system. Our brain stem, that first instinctual biological carrot brain. Then we have the limbic system, the second brain, which is the animal brain. And both of those 
are survival mechanisms based on biochemistry. Fortunately, we have a third brain in us, the cortex, which developed after millions of years, and it has two functions that make us specifically human. One is to know, and the other is to decide to take action. And it's that cortex that manages the limbic system and the brainstem that manages the emotions and the instincts. That's how we become mature, is by pausing and figuring out what we can handle and what we can't handle. Mm -hmm. and, and we make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And we learn from those mistakes because we can evaluate it. And we can make less mistakes, less serious mistakes, and correct them more effectively with practice. But that means we will suffer our mistakes and we don't allow our mistakes to name us. They're just our mistakes. Oh, I made a mistake. I'm not a mistake. There's nothing wrong with me. I just didn't evaluate it correctly. And now I know better. So I won't do that again. <laughs> or I will do something else again. Does that all make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. 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 Again, another really, really good question here. We got... Uh, you know, we're, we're just addressing navigating life, and you'll have more uh, understanding of what I mean by that after we plumb the depths of uh, unmanageability in the big book. It's the, at 10 years of sobriety, during my third trip through the steps, was the very first time that that was unpacked for me in a way that I could understand it and have an experience with it. So, all right. I have found lots of resistance and distractions when I practice centering prayer. I'm not new to centering prayer, but I also have not been practicing it for a really long time. Just this morning during my centering prayer, the thought came to me that I was not worthy to be in God's presence. I believe I know the source of that thought, but yet I was still indeed surprised and, and that the thought came because I, I, haven't, I don't remember ever thinking that before. Um, not sure what I think about that or even to really ask about it, but what I do know is that it made me feel very sad. I know in my head that God loves me and that I am worthy. I certainly have the knowledge, but emotionally I don't know. And how do I teach my emotional side? How do I convince my emotional side that I am worthy? You have a wonderful insight that from a logic and a knowledge standpoint, you know you're worthy. But from a feeling standpoint, there is a gnawing voice in you that says you're not. Welcome to the human race. <laughs> All right, you're, you're in really big company here. We've got 79 people on the call and 78 of them relate to you. I don't know who that other person is, but they're in denial. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Right, right, right. Um, my, my sense, and I discovered it the first time I went through the steps out of the big book. I was four years sober. I thought I was a Renaissance man. That was my self-image. It was a complete mask, a false self, a delusion. It wasn't real, but I didn't know that it wasn't real, and I defended it, and I could explain how great I was. And I did regularly. Yeah, but 
the, my meetings were very patient with me. But when I went through the fourth step, I found out I'm not a Renaissance man at all. I'm a Neanderthal that was covering up my low self-esteem by my grandiosity. It was in my fourth step that I discovered the source of my low self-esteem. And it was by the end of the ninth step that my self-esteem began to return or, or maybe for the very first time heal and have self-esteem. And my sense is once we bring healing to other people with the ninth step, amends, we change our behavior, but we, be, we bring repair to the world around us that where we've created damage. That is so healing to them, the paradox and the reciprocity is that we are healed. Isn't that the prayer of St. Francis? To the extent that we forgive, we are forgiven. And the Lord's mm -hmm. prayer, to the extent that we release them from their debt, we are released. I looked up the word forgiveness in a dictionary, and you've probably seen me do this before. Look at my hand. It's a, fence, it's a clenched fist. During the preparation of steps eight and nine, I was asked to look up the word forgiveness in a dictionary. When I looked up the word, this is the image I got, a decision to release them. Steps eight and nine brought me to a place where I was willing to bring healing to them and change to myself. And in that process, I brought healing to myself and change to them. It's a paradox. I actually don't know how it works. It's one of those mysteries. But I do know that it works. And then, of course, I did some therapy. And then I did some reading on self-esteem. And one of the books that said that I really liked about self-esteem, the one thing I remember from it said, if you want self-esteem, genuine, authentic self-esteem, do esteemable things. Oh my God, could it be that simple? Yes, it is. Yeah, when we behave differently, we begin to think and feel differently. Now we know it's science. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dan Siegel at UCLA is a psychiatrist that has done, has done a lot of work in the brain. And uh, we now know what we didn't know. 15 years ago, we did not know that we can change the biology of our brain. Up till that point, all credible science was that you cannot change the brain. Once it deteriorates, it deteriorates and it's forever lost not true. We can change our brain, we can change the biology of our brain by different actions. When we take different actions, we create new neuronal synapse paths in the brain, which then creates new habits, and then creates new knowledge and new feelings about ourselves. It's, it's now biology. So again, a terrific question. And that's what this work is all about. It's about awakening and then healing. The book doesn't use the term healing, but I do, because it's the only word I can use to describe what the outcomes are for myself and for those around me. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, your guys are pulling it out of me today. So there you go.
I don't get up in the morning and do my prayer and meditation first thing. I don't get that daily reprieve. And there's a real good chance that day I'm not going to have my serenity. Yeah. And um, I can't fix this reacting thing. No. Only God can fix it. So I, I would just love to hear your comments about what's been rolling around in my head. Well, uh, again, um, I'm prompted to a picture because it really helps me communicate it. And that is I refer to this journey as a rocket launch. Bill does on page 25. He says we're rocketed into the fourth dimension. So after watching um, that movie about the three women and the, and the rocket launching, um, image of courage, whatever it was, um, hidden figures, hidden figures. Yeah. I really, it's a wonderful movie from my standpoint. Um, then I, I, I put this, that the first three stages of the rocket launch are steps one through nine. Steps one through three, first stage, off the ground. Second stage, four through seven, a relationship with myself. The, second, the third stage, uh, steps eight and nine, a relationship with the balance of others, humanity. And then we're rocket launched into the fourth dimension, which is an orbit around the light. This is my point here. I'm in orbit around the light. And if you remember and have seen the Star Wars movie, the starship, whatever it was, the good or bad starship, um, is invulnerable to attack as long as it has its shield strong and, in and up. But if the shield is down or the shield has a defect in it, then it's vulnerable to attack. The spiritual shield that we have after being rocketed into the fourth dimension, the world of the spirit, the spiritual shield that we have to stay in the light is this power other than ourself. A relationship with a power other than ourself. I, I, I don't care what you call it. Even if you don't call it anything, but you know what I'm talking about in terms of universal vocabulary. I'm, as long as I'm in orbit around the light, I'm in relationship. As long as I'm on a daily basis, making that shield strong in terms of the relationship, I'm protected from the obsession. But if I don't make those daily adjustments of step 10 when I'm disturbed, or as you said, when I get up, getting guidance for my day, or in step 12, operating on principles, especially helping other people. If I don't make those daily adjustments, the, the, the shield starts getting thin or it even disappears and we're vulnerable to the obsession. That's my mental image of that daily reprieve. It doesn't happen tomorrow because you missed your meditation today but your shield has been impacted. Your shield has been impaired. And over time, one of my good friends said, the drink is not the relapse. The drink is the evidence of a relapse that took place weeks ago. But what you're, what you're talking is, again, all part of my bullseye 
ministry, I'll use those terms loosely, in that most people, 37 years, 36 years, most people in the rooms don't know what I just said is the truth. They may not have even heard it. They certainly don't understand the nature of unmanageability and the need for steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. That unmanageability, we're not cured of, Bill says. We're not cured of our humanity. Our will, on its own basis, will always choose me. That's what, that's what you said, right? Yeah. 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 And you don't have any power or control over it. The only power that you have is a relationship with God, which gives you then the protection, the shield. Does that well, make sense now? Oh, yeah, it makes complete sense. And, you know, and I have to say, I, I am so grateful for what uh, everything I've learned. But this 10, 11, 12, this focus on 10, 11, 12, yeah. you know, I just have not taken it seriously enough especially most people don't most people don't that's right well thank you thank you very much that's why we have less than 50 percent recovery and i'm being generous right because people don't understand it's not because they're willful and they want to suffer no that's not it at all we don't choose addiction and we don't choose suffering what we do is we don't choose god the the decision of my free will then the proper use of my will is god or no god it's that simple and as bill said we're either going for god or we're going for our addiction there's no in between and there's no resting spot we don't get the weekends off Yeah, I wonder if that what's if that's what Bill meant by daily reprieve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. And I'm just thinking that there might be some hope for me here, Herb. I am pumped. I am psyched. And I just finished my fourth day of sobriety. No flour oh. and no sugar. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, it, it would have been awful if Henrietta Cyberling when Bill called her that night from the Mayfair Hospital to find out if there was somebody he could help, it would have been awful if Henry, Henrietta Cyberling would have taken Bill's name and number and given it to Bob and said, Bob, you call Bill. Right. We wouldn't be here. Bill called and Bill set up the meeting and Bob reluctantly came to the meeting. And we're here because of it. So one of the early on things I learned, because in the beginning, I was giving my phone number out to people who asked me for help, but nobody called me. So after I heard somebody who had some experience with this whole thing of sponsorship say, give them your number, but then get their number. And when they don't call you, you call them. That's called 12-step work, by the way, when we reach out to help. Yeah. Besides lots of household clutter, I have copious amounts of journals from way back until the present time. 
So my question is, is this like a compulsion? Is this an addiction? Is it... Um, Those are really good questions. Yeah. And, and you're the only one that's going to be able to answer them. Yeah. Yeah. But, but hold the questions during the entire time we're doing step one. Okay. Don't take any action other than holding the question. You might even write out the questions and in the set aside prayer every morning, pray that prayer and then read your questions, thoughtfully read your questions, and then just go about your day. And at the end of step one, take a look at those questions again and write out, spend a day or two writing out an answer to those questions after we finish step one. Okay. Uh, questions like, so what's my real concern? A question like, what's my real purpose in keeping these? A question like, what's my real purpose in actually even doing these journals? What am I hoping for? What am I expecting? What am I experiencing? Don't answer these questions okay. until after we finish the first step. And then you'll ask, then you will apply the questions that we asked and we'll keep on asking in the first half of the first step, especially about addiction. Because I don't know whether it's a addiction or not. It might just be a habit of some kind, or it might be some other kind of an emotional whatever. I, I don't know what it is. But there's only two questions with regard to addiction. And you get, make sure you're really clear on this by the time you finish the step one. And that is, when I begin, do I lose control? Uh, mm -hmm. The second question is, when I stop with a decision to stop and uh, an experience of actually stopping for a week or a month or longer, I inevitably start again. I cannot stay stopped. The first question, do I lose control once I start? The second question, can I stay stopped? And I don't mean for a month or a year. I mean stop and not, not do it again. All right? Okay. And at the end of step one, I want you then to look at the questions in prayer and write out an answer and come back and talk to us about it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're not alone. Yeah, I know you're, that. I, yeah. My new sponsor does it and her sponsor does it. So uh, it's, you're, ah. you're not alone. I kept all of my step four inventories until I did the steps the third time. I will give you the conclusion of that story at the end of step one when you share it. And you remind me of that, okay? Okay, all right. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Now, I could relate to that. Yep. All right. <laughs> all right. I um, started meditating the intentional consciousness way uh, about a month ago, as you recommend. And it was going really well. And um, so well that it, it was like I started feeling really really uh, like euphoric 
and I couldn't wait to get up and do it. I I'd go outside in a really beautiful setting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I do it, but it was getting to the point after about a, a week and a half. I, I felt like I couldn't handle it. I felt like, oh, this is just too much and kind of have this buzz going and it, it was that sort of feeling, but it was just overwhelming. And I did eventually have a crash from that. And I'm thinking that that feeling, that over the top thing was coming from me. And the problem with relying on feelings is that they're chemically based and they have a tendency to come and go. And sometimes the chemical is negative based on some perception or some rhythm in your own body chemistry. And so the authentic spiritual life is not based on feelings. It's based on a decision and a practice. And sometimes I feel magnificent, like I can heal the world. At other times, I'm bored out of my mind. But I don't change my practice. I show up for my meditation in the morning. I don't change my actions. I still return phone calls and spend my day trying to help other people. Whether I'm ecstatic or neutral, or in fact, having a little bit of fog in the brain. Yep. So it doesn't matter what the source is. Enjoy it when you feel the pink cloud. But don't chase it, because if you try to chase it, you will chase it away. Okay. Yeah? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's something to think about. Yeah, well, just embrace it every day. Embrace the day. What's your decision? I want to be in alignment with reality. I want, I want to be, well, I'll use the terms from the book. I want to be in the world of spirit, knowing and following God's will. That's, that's the, the terminology in the big book. We know God's will by doing steps one through nine, because in there we identify all of the outcomes of our will. And by contrast, that would be God's will. If dishonesty is my will, then honesty is my decision to be in alignment with God's will. If infidelity is my experience of character defect, then fidelity is my prayer in terms of being in alignment with my understanding of God's will and principle. This is not a journey for sissies. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. a journey this is a journey for people who are and want to be an adult. Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing that already. <laughs> <laughs> and what we're talking about here, steps one through nine, is the rite of passage to true adulthood.
you know, I, I completed, you know, page 15 and, you know, a lot came up with that. Um, you know, looking at like my history of, of blackouts and certain behaviors that I did when I was drinking. But the part that I get confused with is, I mean, I feel like I could clearly see it, but then I got to a point where I was able to moderate and then eventually stop and stop now for five years. So I'm confused in that aspect because I could, I could check mark the box of have I lost control? Have, you know, have I behaved in certain ways? Have I done this more than once? I mean, like, I can't even count how many times I've blacked out. But then, you know, I went from hard liquor to like wine. And I'm like, okay, that was a sense of control and moderation. And then it wasn't as frequent. Maybe it was just on the weekends until eventually I stopped. So I, I guess that's the part that I'm confused with. Like if I was eventually able to stop, even though I see all the alcoholic behavior, what does that even mean? So I'm, I'm bringing that up to you. No, it's a really, really, really good question. And it sounds like you had a habit of drinking that created a problem for you. And over time, you were able to whip some knowledge and some resistance to the suffering, you were able to curtail it and manage it so that you had a drink or two and it didn't create a problem, but eventually, for whatever reason, you quit altogether. Mm -hmm. So you've been abstinent from alcohol for five years. Yeah. And, um, and I even noticed the crazy thought of like, you know, maybe you could test out this theory and see what happens, you know, like have a drink, see what, see what occurs. And I'm well, the, the, the big book suggests that, all right, in the sense of if you're not sure, try some controlled drinking. If you're really an alcoholic, you will not, over a long period of time, be able to control it. At some point, you will lose control. I never give that suggestion. It's very dangerous. Let's assume that you're not an alcoholic, that you had a bad habit, and over time, with sheer willpower, mm -hmm. all right, you're intelligent, you are successful in other areas of your life, I'm sure, and now you've demonstrated you're successful in this. Let's assume you're not an alcoholic, that you just had an unhealthy habit, and now you've managed, so you have five years of not drinking. Mm -hmm. What would be the benefit of having a drink? There is none, right? Well, no, no, no. There must be some secret in you that says, because a, a, a real true non-alcoholic after five years of not drinking wouldn't be having this conversation. They wouldn't be concerned about it. Mm -hmm. So either you're a non-alcoholic and you have some type of a romantic connection to what the benefit might be. Oh, it feels good. <laughs> the what? The what? It, it feels good. I mean, it, it, I mean, that's. All right. Does it feel good uh, um, better than five years of sobriety without it? Oh, no. I mean, yeah, in that sense, the, f the five years of sobriety, yeah, it doesn't, it, yeah, it's unmeasurable, the, the benefits of that. See, what I experienced was my first drink was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It just gave me this wonderful sense of magnanimity and, 
and graciousness and it smoothed out all the rough edges in me. All right. And, and I love that part, but now I don't have the rough edges. I live a very smooth and quite frankly, adventurous and exciting life of helping other people. And it's like daily adrenaline for me. When, when I get off this call, I have to go out for an hour's walk mm. to calm down. Yeah. There's no way I could do this uh, before I went to bed. I wouldn't go to sleep. It's like a caffeine hit. All right. <laughs> yeah. So even if as an, I, I'm convinced I'm an alcoholic, but even if there was a shot or a pill that I could take that would completely make me a non-alcoholic, I wouldn't drink alcohol because it couldn't do for me what my sobriety in this program does for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, that's a bit of a sort of waving pom-poms as a cheerleader for you. But, uh, <laughs> and that, you know, the book says frothy emotional appeal seldom helps. So, uh, you know, I just, but I wanted to put that to you and then, but, and stay open. Um, you're, you've asked a really good question. You've looked at your own personal experience through uh, page 15. In the next section, we're going to be looking at the mind problem, the mental defective problem, the obsession and delusion. Similarly, you will look at a worksheet there. And then we will be looking at unmanageability and similarly look at a worksheet there. And again, at the end of step one, and the work that you've done already, continue it with the work that I'm going to be recommending and cycle back to us and let us know what your thoughts are at that time. Sounds good, Herb. Thank you so yeah. much. Meanwhile, don't drink. Yeah. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> Thank <you. laughs> Thanks so much. All right. So I'm going to pray the serenity prayer. God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. That's what we want. Wisdom. That combination of knowledge and experience. Thanks, everybody.